The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and continuing to reliably serve its customers around the world. SunGrow has also leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at www.sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. The latest data on unemployment and clean energy is out, and it is worse than expected. Nearly half a million people across efficiency, renewables, clean vehicles, and fuels lost their jobs in April. The business group E2 projects that if nothing is done, clean energy will lose a quarter of its workforce by July. We're going to take a closer look and ask how or if the jobs are coming back. Then economists weigh in. Nicholas Stern and Joseph Stiglitz surveyed more than 200 central bank and finance ministers to target the most effective recovery measures. We'll talk about what could be the fastest and the best for climate. And finally, wildfires during a pandemic. Are California utilities ready for these dual threats? And why did a judge call PG&E's fire preparation work courtroom props? I suspect that uh, Jigger will have something stronger to say about PG&E today. Who knows? <laughs> Jigger Shah is <laughs> there in Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital, and he's our regular co-host. Hey, Jigger. Hey. Are you feeling strong-minded today? Do you have strong words to share with us? <laughs> I'm always feeling strong-minded. <laughs> this is an important service that we provide to our listeners. I have to come ready for battle. That's why we uh, have you as our co-host. Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. She is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She is also our regular co-host. Hey, Catherine. Hey, I'm just feeling lucky today. How many times did you go food shopping since the last time we talked to you? You said that you're constantly thinking about food now for your family. Yeah, now I figured out the perfect time to go. It's like every other week later in the evening and uh, there are fewer people there. But I've also figured out how to make buttermilk biscuits with all different ways of doing buttermilk other than actual buttermilk. <laughs> well, you're Southern. Of course, you'll be making buttermilk biscuits. Mm-hmm. 850,000. That's how many jobs the analysts at E2 and BW Research believe are going to go away in clean energy by the end of the second quarter without any kind of policy intervention. 600,000 people are already out of work. We've had a 17% drop in the green workforce since coronavirus began hitting this country's economy. All the employment growth that we've seen in clean energy for the last three years, double that is now gone. Uh, we also saw a survey from Advanced Energy Economy, which is a, a trade group, and they found that 84% of companies have had to stop or delay projects. So this is hitting pretty much everybody. Catherine, uh, what jumped out at you from the E2 report? Yeah, a couple things. One is that April was triple job losses than in March. And that kind of makes sense given the stay home orders and the fact that, you know, some of the delays that we've seen, you know, had come, it took a little while for them to really show the impact. But a couple of other things is that Latinos make up 
only 14% of the clean energy workforce and yet accounted for 25% of the job losses. So that was a pretty significant detail that jumped out. Um, Efficiency jobs, like 70% of the jobs in efficiency. Uh, Renewables was only about 16%, vehicles 14%, and fuels less than 3%, but efficiency was huge. And then also, if you look at the states impacted, California certainly has the most numbers, the highest numbers, like almost 80,000 jobs that were lost in April. But Georgia has the highest percentage, like 30% of their clean energy jobs in Georgia in the month of April. So Jigger, what's going on here? Let's talk about uh, the Latino workforce first. Why are they disproportionately impacted here? Well, the greatest number of Latinos in the clean energy sector are in the construction side of the business. And with all these stay-at-home orders, as well as essential designations, uh, many of the clean energy projects are not able to move forward. And so many folks have either been furloughed or laid off as folks wait until they can start construction again. Uh, And then what about the surges in states like Georgia, as Catherine outlined? So California was a first mover in shutting down its economy. But then all of a sudden you see states like Georgia where there's this huge wave of job losses. What's happening there? Well, Georgia's jobs are concentrated in two places. One is utility scale solar with all these five megawatt solar plants. And the second is in energy efficiency, both of which are difficult to do when people are staying at home and they don't want folks coming into their house to you know, do some of these weatherization or upgrade programs. And so you can imagine that a lot of those are on hold, right? I think the same you'll see in North Carolina and in some of these other states where you had a lot of this type of construction. I, In general, I'd say that the clean energy industry is the poster child for exactly what the U.S. Congress predicted, right? So the folks who are being furloughed are getting, you know, the normal unemployment that they get from the state, but they're also getting an additional $600 a week. So if they were making less than 20 bucks an hour, then they're actually been made whole completely while they're um, on unemployment. And if they're making more than $20 an hour, then they're taking a bit of a haircut. Um, And my sense is that as soon as these essential designations get lifted and people are back to construction, most of these folks will be the first ones to get hired back to, you know, to get back to work. Catherine, what's happening here sectorally? Why is efficiency getting hit the hardest? Yeah, I mean, efficiency, you have to get into buildings and homes. And I think that's been hugely problematic. With some of the renewable jobs, you can work outside. And of course, those are impacted too, but not nearly as high a percentage as efficiency. And then storage and transmission and distribution and all those and vehicles, it's less of an impact, but still an impact. And some of those are not just because you can't get access to a building, but because you may have delay in getting inspections and approvals because of someone else who has to do their job so that you can continue to work or in trying to get equipment and supplies and logistical issues. Um, There are a lot of delays on that. So some of this, you see the immediate impact on energy efficiency, but I see as we move forward that delays in all of these other kind of supply chain issues are going to continue to adversely impact all of the clean energy sectors and all actually all job sectors everywhere. So many of these jobs may come back quickly when the economy starts to reopen, obviously in in phases. Let me pose something and get you both to react. So my my assumption here or my theory is that clean energy won't be harder hit 
longer term because there's so much more policy support on a local level. Whereas if demand for oil and gas remains low or prices are depressed at $35 to $25 a barrel for the foreseeable future, a lot of those folks in uh, in the oil fields are just not going to go back to work. Whereas there's a lot more explicit policy support for efficiency or renewables that will put people back to work faster, absent any kind of federal stimulus. What do you think about that as we sort of think about the differences between the oil and gas space and the renewable space? Yeah, I mean, I think this is about macro changes post-COVID, right? So when you think about pre-COVID, post-COVID, you know, you've got folks that are saying like Twitter's Jack Dorsey basically saying that we're permanently going to allow people to work from home because it's working out. JP Morgan, Chase, Citibank, others have said the same thing. And so you could see some sort of uh, issue with commercial real estate, for instance, coming back. So if you're in the middle of building a brand new building, might not actually get finished right now. Um, But for renewable energy and clean energy, a lot of those projects have power purchase agreements, permits, they have approvals, they have whatever it is that they're supposed to have. And so, you know, I think that our sector is going to operate far more logically um, than other sectors, right? Because other sectors... The politicians haven't wrapped their brain around when are people going to have weddings again? When are people going to actually like, you know, rent out ballrooms and all these other things, right? Whereas for our sectors, I think, you know, they sort of see it the way that they see it, which is that you, you know, have these folks not working, the employers get PPP loans, they pay folks, you know, then by the end of July, maybe that loan gets forgiven and people get back to work and doing construction with safer practices. And so a lot of the logic threads that the politicians are thinking about actually apply to the clean energy industry. Yeah. And if you look in comparison, oil and gas, um, over half of those workers um, could lose their jobs. And that's, you know, sort of the double whammy of the oil crisis. Uh, But one of the things that um, has been thought of, and Canada has done this with their oil and gas workers, is they've created over 5,000 jobs um, plugging abandoned wells. And we have like 2 million abandoned wells. So we could get some of those folks back to work doing that. But certainly that sector is not going to be coming back in the same pace or with the same types of jobs that renewables and efficiency will. Yeah. I mean, in Texas alone, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of job losses. I mean, we're looking at a million job losses in oil and gas by the end of the year. So they're certainly getting hit really hard. That's so interesting. I mean, you could you could imagine explicit policies putting people back to work in the oil and gas industry out in the field for environmental remediation, or like you said, plugging up these oil and gas wells. Um, it's a shame that we actually don't have the federal vision to put something like that in place, because this is the perfect opportunity to put people back to work pretty quickly, even if the uh, oil market doesn't rebound. I don't think it's federal vision as much as it's just coming to grips with the changes post-COVID. And I think that that's you know, across the board, you know, there's a lot of things that people just want to cling to around, you know, I do think this is going to go back to normal, and they're not, right? And until you actually come to that conclusion that they're not, then you don't allow yourself to think about, well, what's next? What else can we have these professionals who are well-trained do? Right now, many people, particularly in Texas and Oklahoma and in in North Dakota, et cetera, are still hoping that things go back to some semblance of normalcy. And there are some crazy Wall Street 
traders who are giving them hope, right? Some Wall Street traders are saying oil is going to be back to sixty bucks a barrel by the end of the year, and they're going to it's going to be back to seventy by the end of twenty twenty one, which has zero percent chance of occurring. But you cling to hope, right? And so until you actually lose that hope, it's hard to convince all the parties around the table that the stimulus that's being given to the oil and gas sector. Uh, will be used to transition them into geothermal or carbon sequestration and storage or environmental remediation or all these other things, because all of those efforts seem like you're giving up on their core business. Um, and I think it's really sad because these workers are going to be left in the middle while folks you know, are coming to this realization. I want to talk for a minute about what this does to the pipeline of potential employees who are coming up through the clean energy workforce. So our senior editor, Ingrid Lobet, has been talking with some of the people who are facing this up close. She spoke with Anna Batista, who's the VP of Construction for Grid Alternatives, which is a solar storage and clean mobility contractor. They bring people in from the community to train them on the job and hopefully get them jobs in the clean energy workforce doing uh, installation and, and sales. And she talked about all the people that she was waiting to get trained in solar, that like they just can't get access to these these trainings right now. We're hopeful that by Q3 that we can resume in-person training. We were really excited about our installation um, basics training. It was already being offered in a few of our regions, but we were really you know, hoping to ramp that up. Um, it's a 200-hour program intended to get trainees production level ready uh, in 200 hours. And so it offered OSHA 10, CPR certification, a combination of classroom and lab instruction, as well as live installations, and then um, a skills performance test. Um, and we also provided employment readiness around teamwork, communication, interview practice. And so we're really <laughs> excited to offer that. And we really hope that by Q3, we can bring that back. So the question is, will they get that back? When will it come back? And what is that going to do to the pipeline of folks? Because all across the industry, you're seeing uh, training programs getting uh, delayed or canceled. So similar to our conversations about sourcing business deals at the top of the funnel, uh, if you can't go to conferences, if you can't go and network, then your funnel starts to close up and the medium term impacts become more acute. So what happens to the workforce if this funnel in the training pipeline closes up? Uh, Jigger, thoughts on this? Well, I don't think we're in any sort of emergency situation now. Remember, we've trained hundreds of thousands of people over the years, some of whom have left the solar industry and went back into home construction or other services and, you know, can can be brought back into our industry if we're where the jobs are. I think the other thing is that the volume of installs that we're doing this year is probably going to be, you know, somewhere in the half range of what we did last year because just of COVID-related delays, right? So you can't lose three or four months of construction during the height of the season and, you know, expect to just make that back through overtime. Um, and so my sense is that we're okay for now and that we will ramp up these programs and I think we'll be okay in 2021. I mean, our biggest problem going into the COVID crisis was severe job shortages uh, you know, worker shortages because it was just so hard to retain people at three and a half percent unemployment rates. I mean, just getting people to stick around more than 10 weeks before they got a better job offer to go somewhere else was really tough. And so you had a lot of turnover and you had a lot of uh, skills issues. I think, you know, my sense is that there'll be a, there'll be a, 
a, a better sort of workforce coming out of uh, the COVID crisis. Catherine, thoughts? Yeah, and interestingly, Grid Alternatives does train lots of folks in the solar workforce, and they never have trouble finding jobs because, of course, construction jobs really do need very specific training. And if we can ramp up programs like that, that'll be to everybody's benefit. These job losses are so high. Let's talk about getting some of these people who are working out in the field back to work and what makes sense. Ingrid spoke with Bob Keefe, the executive director of E2, the organization that put out this report, and he pointed out uh, one group of clean energy workers who maybe could go back to work pretty soon. Right now we have 9,800 schools across America that are closed. Those schools are going to be closed probably till the fall in a lot of states or in most states. Why can't we uh, have a, a national program or even state programs to get these schools better prepared in terms of energy efficiency and make them more energy efficient and get some of those energy efficiency workers off the sidelines and back on the job right now. It'll save money for these school districts and states. It'll make our schools healthier and better for the kids when they finally get in there. And we could put thousands and thousands of energy efficiency people back to work right now. So this seems like a pretty important opportunity. If all these buildings are closed down for months, who knows how many months you can get folks into these buildings in a safe way and perform audits, retrofits, tune-up equipment, a really important energy efficiency opportunity. And one wonders why we're really not thinking about that in a comprehensive way. Uh, Catherine, thoughts on the opportunity here or similar opportunities in clean energy to take advantage of the fact that out in the field, there's not much happening. Yeah, I think that is a huge opportunity. And I think what everybody's been trying to grapple with, one is making sure that they follow the CDC guidelines on safe practices. So making sure everybody has masks and protective gear and does social distancing, and they're able to do that in those jobs. But the other thing is making sure that they're tested and you know that there's contact tracing and everything that we have to do with COVID um, applies in this industry. And I think once we get a handle on that, and I think that's just been a bit of a moving target, then it will be easier to get these folks back to work. And I think they are some of the first that can get back in. And it's a great idea to get people into buildings that are not open right now. Jigger? Should we be putting people back into these buildings to upgrade them while we have the opportunity? Or are there other similar kinds of work that we can we can uh, pursue while the economy is halfway shut down? Look, I think when you think about restarting the economy, which is what I think you know this is a part of, um, restarting the lunch counter that's across the street from the office building that you're no longer going to is probably not the highest priority. Right. And figuring out how to get, you know, the coffee shop and all these other places going while most people are still sheltering in place are not the is not the highest priority. It's, you know, infrastructure where you actually have a very direct correlation between this home needs to be weatherized or this building can be made more energy efficient or these lights can be replaced and this person's trained and we know how to get this is the right answer. But honestly, I'd have to say that the whole process is super frustrating for me. I mean, as someone who talks a lot with governors and mayors, as well as like, you know, I think we were all on a call with uh, Nancy Pelosi this week. Um, she was very clear that that none of our stuff is being prioritized in this current bill that she put out yesterday. And I think it's super frustrating because while these buildings are empty all summer and have all of this opportunity is when we should be doing things. And it doesn't sound to me like she's going to allocate any money for any of this until the fall. 
Well, we have one person who is the face of the clean energy industry, and that is Elon Musk, who is uh, at war with California officials right now. Uh, he wants to open up his factory. In fact, he did open up um, his Fremont factory. He is on the line with workers and he dared California officials to come and arrest him. They said that, no, they weren't going to arrest him. But, you know, Elon Musk has become the face of the put us back to work movement. Uh, what is your stance on his behavior and whether he'll force the conversation on this? Well, I'm not I'm certainly not defending all of his anti-COVID tweets over the last, you know, two months. And so I don't know that Elon's been a model citizen for the last two months. But I, I do think that when the governor of California says that manufacturing is now available to be open, and you have a company that has a long waiting list of people who want to put in, who want to buy electric cars and help clean up the air quality in the areas that they live in. And you've got a county who basically says, well, we basically just don't feel comfortable because we're in lockstep with five other counties in this region, and we're all basically waiting for another couple of weeks. I think it is kind of ludicrous. And my sense is, is that he made a pretty simple request to say, we're ready to get back to work. I think we actually know how to get back to work. Our factory in China is already back to work, and we've actually had all these social distancing policies there, that it makes sense for them to do that. Separately, I think Elon knows that the county officials in Alameda have no jurisdiction or power. All they are is basically like a public service request, which is great. And so they're trying to educate people, but they don't have the power to tell the sheriff to go arrest Elon Musk or the power to shut down a facility. There's no legal basis for their control. It's just a bunch of people that are looking for leadership and are listening to them. So I, I think that this is going to keep happening over and over again across the country as individual people have businesses that continue to have consumers who want to buy their product. And we should be encouraging those businesses to stay open because the other 30% of businesses in the country have no consumers. And even if they opened up, no one would show up to buy anything. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense to open a facility where you can put protective gear on and in fact is preferred to have protective gear on and maintain safe social distance rather than opening tattoo parlors. <laughs> Catherine, a significant number of folks who listen to this podcast are job seekers or people who are just starting out looking at opportunities in the clean energy industry. Is it still worth their investment in time and talent to get into this industry, given the decimation that we've seen in the last couple of months? Oh, absolutely. In fact, this is a really good time to get more education. So, you know, get on those online courses to, to learn more about it. So definitely don't be dissuaded by these numbers or by Michael Moore's movie. <laughs> Jigger, thoughts on this? Should people be investing their time and talent in this industry, given, given the problems that we're seeing in the short term? Yeah, I think it's important to note that none of our institutional investor and partners have lost money uh, from COVID. None of the folks who own huge, you know, wind farms and solar farms and others have shown, you know, large losses. There hasn't been decimation, uh, to use your word. I mean, what we've done is followed the public health orders. We have furloughed employees that, that are counted as unemployed, as we were asked to do by the federal government. And those people are getting unemployment. And as soon as the country is 
back open for business, all of those people are going to get rehired because Lord knows we spent a lot of money training them and we want them back in our industry. So I don't think our industry has been decimated. And I think you'll find our industry is a model industry that's going to come back roaring once the government says it's, you know, the country's open for business. We're going to take a quick pause here to talk about our supporter, SunGrow. SunGrow has been taking this crisis very seriously. And when the company realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty. Uncertainty around public health, uncertainty around business prospects. And SunGrow prioritized the safety of its employees by investing in measures to protect its factory workers from infection. The company is working closely with suppliers and customers to ensure it can continue to deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule to project developers around the world. So when the economy really does ramp back up and projects kick into high gear, SunGrow will be there to help. As a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., SunGrow has leveraged its logistics network across the country to distribute face masks as well to communities in need. You can learn more about SunGrow at www.sungrowpower.com. This year, global greenhouse gas emissions will fall by more than any other year on record, but emissions will rebound, as we've discussed. Nearly everyone in this space is trying to figure out how to use the economic pause for environmental good when the economy does kick back into high gear. In a new report, Nicholas Stern and Joseph Stiglitz, among others, surveyed hundreds of finance and central bank officials, as well as other economic experts. And, oh, wait a second, Jigger, didn't you say that there's no reason to listen to economists? (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny story. As you know, like after um, Lord Stern's report, I was furious. I think we had an Energy Gang podcast on that. And Remind us what Lord Stern's report well, was. Well, his report was basically, it only costs 1% of global GDP to solve the world's climate change problems, which made me so mad since this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet. And it caused uh, Al Gore and... Uh, Bono to remember to have that famous fight on stage around growth and development versus climate change. And we haven't, we still haven't shaken that. And so I confronted Lord Stern about it at uh, one of the uh, cops. And uh, Richard Branson had to apologize on my behalf to Lord Stern <laughs> for my rudeness. <laughs> well, let's see uh, if you retain your composure in this conversation then. So so these two gentlemen, along with a bunch of others, uh, talked to financial experts, economists, and asked them, what are the best ways to reanimate the economy um, after the public health crisis, the, the initial wave of the public health crisis? And a lot of them said low carbon investments. And many of the respondents said that policies that deliver large economic multipliers quickly are you know, climate change related investments. So they came up with five areas, and that includes clean physical infrastructure, building energy retrofits, investment in education and training, and natural capital investment in clean R&D. And a lot of folks are weighing in on this as well. The Breakthrough Institute has had a bunch of reports on what could be done to to decarbonize as part of the stimulus. They had a report um, about six weeks ago on low-hanging fruit, stuff that's already supported by lawmakers that you could push through right now. And then today, as we record this, the group series has brought together executives from hundreds of companies for what they're calling the largest virtual lawmaker education and advocacy day. 
So a lot of resources are coming together to convince policymakers in the U.S. and beyond that low-carbon investments are some of the best ways to get economic activity moving again. So is this going to convince them, or will it just result in a bunch of reports sitting on shelves and people on Zoom calls talking to each other on a lobbying day? How do we put these ideas into motion? Catherine, um, let's go to the Nicholas Stern and Joseph Stiglitz report. What jumped out at you from that resource? Yeah, what they said in those high potential areas that you mentioned, you know, like R&D, all this clean infrastructure stuff, efficiency, education and training, and natural capital investment, which is like building more parks and doing afforestation, and then clean R&D. And then for rural communities, they said rural support in in, um, connectivity, like making sure they have broadband, internet, Um, that all of these kind of become that can deliver on economic and climate goals that they have co-benefits like better air quality better comfort um and that the policy design is important for countries being able to learn from each other and coordinate so that this is all done in one very intentional and decisive way so it it does require some amount of coordination. And I think in the EU, a lot of this is happening. Now they've, you know, there have been in the G20, I think $7.3 trillion of fiscal measures, um, all of which is rescue, pretty much not recovery at this point. Um, only 4% of that was green, 4% was brown or non renewables, and then 92% was neither. So this is all just about supporting society and doing uh, public health rescue rather than recovery. But as we go forward, a lot of corporations in the EU, at least, are saying, look, we can do both things. We can we can make sure that the recovery is better and that we shouldn't fall into this allure of there's cheap oil, so we should, should spend money on oil and instead do things that have long-term multiplier effects like renewable energy development and the those other, uh, those other sectors that they recommended. And I think the issue is that we're going to have a bit of a patchwork. The EU may be coordinated, but the U.S. is not. And the U.S. is going in a totally different direction. So, um, you know, there are, there's a lot of money being spent on recovery and very, very little of it right now is going to the sectors that we care about and certainly not into stimulating the economy. So when we first started having these conversations about a stimulus, Jigger, both you and Jigger argued like we we are the industry that can scale up the fastest right now. We have projects that are ready to go. If you truly want to support shovel ready projects, clean energy infrastructure is the place to put your money. And they outline some numbers in this report showing that for every one million dollars in spending on clean energy infrastructure, you get almost 7.5 full-time jobs in renewables, 7.7 full-time jobs in energy efficiency, but only 2.6 full-time jobs in fossil fuels. So it's pretty clear that if you get people back to work building stuff out in the field, the multiplier effects for jobs is much higher in clean energy. And they source uh, a lot of research from uh, leading economists and researchers in this report. Yeah, and you know, the public wants that. So the Coalition for Green Capital and SurveyMonkey did a survey um, that showed that 80% across the board, across Democrats, independents, and Republicans, 80% 
want the U.S. government to create jobs and clean energy as infrastructure. I mean, it's it's really amazing. 70% of Republicans want this. So people do want this to happen. And the issue is how do we how do we make it happen in the political dynamics we have now? And then there's, of course, ecosystem restoration, these so-called natural capital projects. And these uh, both offer a lot of immediate benefits in terms of jobs, but also they're easy to pursue with proper social distancing and, and make it safer. Yeah, I think that, again, we have to put this in the broader context of things, right? Remember, the Green New Deal talked about guaranteeing everybody a job. Today, we're in a situation where we are paying people, you know, close to 20 bucks an hour with um, with the $600 a week bonuses that we're providing people on top of their unemployment. And so folks are getting, you know, in some cases, more money than they were getting before they lost their job. And you've got Mark Benioff's, you know, One Trillion Trees initiative. You've got a lot of ecosystems that need restoring that we've well documented. My sense is what's lacking is sort of a work progress administration, right? Like I think what we failed to do in the Obama administration is actually recognize that some of these folks were going to be out of a job for two or three years. And, you know, we actually needed to encourage them to do something for that two or three years, as opposed to just giving them generous unemployment benefits. And so my sense is that that's not going to get solved at the federal level. And so it's something that probably gets solved at the state level. And so I'm hoping that, you know, California and some of these other states that are more progressive are going to say, hey, instead of just giving people unemployment benefits, because we think that they might be able to get back to work in two months, why don't we actually say, hey, would you like to do ecosystem service uh, work? for the next two or three years while we get the economy ramped back up. Well, this is all well and good, Catherine. There are a lot of excellent ideas out there, ideas that have been around for a long time that are getting repackaged in new ways. But one wonders, is this going to have any impact? And Amy Harder at Axios wrote a piece summarizing a lot of the latest activity and research, and she talked to some policymakers many of whom are progressive Democrats who are really supportive of this stuff. And they're saying, eh, now's not the right time. We're going to hang back. We're going to see where this takes us. 2020, we're probably not going to see any movement on this. So are these ideas that are just going to sit there in economist circles or are they going to be put into practice? We may not have the answers yet. I know we've kind of asked this question before, but it's uh, we're getting indications from lawmakers that maybe they don't want to tackle it right now. Yeah, it is really frustrating for people who actually have some solutions and some ideas that could get people back to work when we're ready to get people back to work. And we've been put off, certainly understand, you know, the need for to address the public health crisis. But at this point, you know, last night, the House released uh, something called the HEROES Act. And this is a Democratic proposal that Nancy Pelosi put forward, and it's $3 trillion. It would protect people from electric shutoffs, uh, water shutoffs. It would help pay their bills. It would it would give funding for environmental justice and safe water programs, uh, programs like LIHEAP that would you know really try to help people economically but not put people back to work. And it also doesn't keep the fossil fuel industry from reaping the benefits of a lot of these funding programs. So it, it just doesn't do 
anything to get us going in that direction. And I think we can walk and chew gum. I think we could do this at the same time. And I think we could do things to really expand programs, um, you know, set up funds that uh, would get money out the door that would do, you know, weatherization programs. There are just so many things that we've talked about on the show recently that we could do and get out there that would really start getting people back to work with safe practices and it just has not been done. And I worry, of course, that, you know, even with this bill, I don't think that Mitch McConnell is going to be okay with the level of spending. But at some point, the checkbook is going to close and we won't have spent any money on recovery. And I just hope that isn't the case. I hope that we can tee up for next year. And if the administration changes, that's fine. But it would also mean that the Senate would have to change in order to really get things done. And it just feels like we're losing some opportunity and some ground here. I, you know, I I just think that this is dumber than dumb. Like, I just think that we're... What is? The whole notion that you would actually continue to just give people money without making permanent infrastructure improvements is crazy. I get the fact that there is a huge hole in utility company budgets around, you know, people not paying their utility bills because they can't. And and I, I I think that we should do something about it. I think Vote Solar estimated it would cost about $28 billion or so to fill the hole, which I think is fine. We should fill it. But we should say, if we fill it, we're also going to, you know, put in electric appliances and we're going to move towards, you know, decarbonizing these homes. We're also going to do weatherization. Um, and we have all that infrastructure in place, as Catherine points out, from the era stimulus bill when we 10 x uh, weatherization money. I just think the notion that we should just keep giving people more and more money to just tread water is ridiculous. And we are absolutely just going to run out of money. And then later, we're absolutely going to hear from elected officials that, sorry, we've, we don't have any more money for recovery. So sucks to be all of us. And I just I find the lack of thoughtfulness on the part of our elected officials today to be galling. And it's just it's Nancy Pelosi has way too many years under her belt to be so naive. Like she should know exactly how to tie these two things together. I just can't imagine that she has to only work on the on the crisis right now and can't figure out at all how to work on the recovery. Well, I might be getting out of my realm of expertise here, but from what I understand, you need to give more money to people because it turns out that people will spend that money on groceries, on their mortgage, on the things that they need to pay for in their daily lives, and that giving people more money to spend is actually a better way to push the recovery forward. The problem isn't the spending on individual people. Uh, it's that we're devoting a lot of money to bailouts of large corporations and not spending the money on infrastructure itself. So I think you can do both. I think you can spend it on infrastructure and spend it on people. Yeah, I think I'm saying the same thing, Stephen. My point is, is that they're not tied together in a coherent way. And I think expecting individual people getting $1,200 checks to make individual decisions to tie all this stuff together in a coherent way is ridiculous, right? They're not going to spend that $1,200 on energy efficiency for their home. They're absolutely going to spend it on groceries or rent, right? And so it is it is the requirement of Congress to actually listen to experts and do things more thoughtfully. And so, and by the way, this, these utility bill benefits benefits are not going to the people. They're going to erase debts that are incurred by the people. So they're going directly to the utility companies. And instead, the the Congress could say, we're going to give you this money, but you're going to have to weatherize all these people's homes or else you don't get 
this debt erased from your balance sheet, right? And oh, by the way, they have 400,000 people that just got laid off in April that, you know, are ready to get their jobs back to do all that weatherization work. And many of the governors, including in New York and California, um, are allowing these services to be called essential again. And so I just think that, like, the timing is completely off. Like, by the time that all the essential designations are fixed in June, that money is not going to be designated by the U.S. Congress to actually start weatherization programs. And all of the other state budgets are on their back. So it's not like the states are saying, oh, yeah, here's an extra billion dollars that I can spend on weatherization. And so like, I just think that everyone in decision-making has gone mad. Like, I don't know whether it's a lack of sleep or low productivity or what it is, but their brains are not working. And someone has to go out and educate them. And I think it's got to be our industry. They got to start calling their elected officials now and start educating them on how the whole goddamn economy works. Totally agree with Jigger. Like, we need to get involved and let these folks know that we can do both at the same time. Okay, well, fire season is coming. And California utilities are scrambling to show how they'll prevent their lines from sparking catastrophic fire. And they're also trying to avoid the massive disruption of cutting people's power during a pandemic. Last week, staff at the California Public Utilities Commission criticized all three major California utilities for not explaining how they're going to shorten these planned power outages. Plus, the federal judge overseeing PG&E's probation slammed that utility over its fire prevention work, calling it sloppy and unreliable. At the same time, fire officials have decided to fight fire entirely differently this year. They're trying to prevent the um, tight living conditions at staging areas, and they plan to put out fires sooner so that firefighters breathe less smoke and people in communities around those controlled burns uh, won't be breathing in that smoke because obviously that exacerbates uh, respiratory issues, which can be a really serious problem if you are infected with COVID. So those vulnerabilities are really crucial to address during the fire season. So let's start with PG&E. They've obviously had the most acute issues, the most uh, liabilities. Why is the company's probation judge so dissatisfied with the company's progress thus far? Jigger? Well, you know, after this kind of horrific set of events occurs, right, where you have loss of life, you have you know, loss of property, uh, you want to know that you have some sort of logical pathway forward, something that's actually going to work, um, that a bunch of experts come together, they write a report, they all say, great, this is going to work, and then pg e goes in and executes it. And we don't have that today. So there still isn't a pathway by which you know, PG&E actually trims all the trees and gets all of that work done. They're, they themselves are saying it's going to take 11 or 12 years to get that done, right? And that we're, there will be blackouts until that occurs. Separately, there was a failed microgrid uh, request for information that went through. You've got that going. So there's actually no new infrastructure on the utility side that's going to be deployed um, to really stave off the worst impacts of this fire season. You've got a whole bunch of private sector actors who've taken matters into their own hands, right? So they've installed bloom energy boxes and combined heat and power boxes and lots of other things. You've got CCAs who are just so young that they haven't figured out what they want to do with customer-sided assets, but they're trying really hard to catch up. And so we're still in a in a place of complete chaos where everyone is saying, what are the official instructions from the governor's office and from PG&E that keeps us safer 
during this, uh, you know, safety season, the, this this public safety shutoff season. And I just don't think there's a lot of answers to those questions. Yeah, someone in California told me that PG&E is too big to fail, and yet they're an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> well, Bill Johnson is leaving as CEO in June because he couldn't handle the stress of the job. I mean, we're in a situation where they've had three CEOs in the last few years. And it's just, I, I do think they're too unwieldy. We had this conversation on the podcast earlier. They are too big. And one CEO can't cover that much ground, and they just can't figure out how to operate as one company, right? For other utility companies that have multiple uh, service territories, they have multiple CEOs and multiple management teams and all that stuff. pg has one management team, and they can't deal with it. The Northern California folks need a completely different set of services than the folks in San Francisco, which have a different set of services than the folks that are farther south in their territory. And then you've got all the folks that, that, that live in the eastern part of their territory towards Fresno. And I just don't think they can handle the complexity of four or five different types of grids operating in different ways with different risk profiles. And it shows because they still don't have clear plans in place for all those regions. Break out the pitchforks and the torches. Um, I wonder if PG&E should uh, get some slack for this because of the pandemic. I mean, you know, isn't this a utility that's dealing with a crisis like everyone else with its its workers and putting their workers out in the field and having constraints associated with um, the, 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 the shutdown. Um, should we give them some slack given the current environment? Look, I think we all agree that utility workers have been busting their hump and, and, and have had deaths as a result, right? I mean, in Con Ed's territory in New York, you've had, uh, you know, many folks who've gotten the coronavirus, and I think 30 plus people that have died, uh, they're kind of employees. So I think our hearts go out to them. And we have a lot of respect for our heroes. But I think that this conversation is more about uh, fire safety. And I think the same thing is true with the governor's office, right? The governor's office is dealing with COVID-related stuff every day, but they separately have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? They have to be able to deal with the coming crisis that's coming in public safety shops. Remember, there are thousands upon thousands of people who actually rely on reliable electricity to stay alive, right? I mean, they have CPAP machines for them to go to sleep. They've got all sorts of things that they need at home to stay alive. And, you know, and last time around, they didn't even have very well-functioning emergency centers that would last for, that would be up and running for 24 hours a day. The task at hand is impossible. This is a huge, horrible issue. And so it's compounded, certainly, by PG&E going through bankruptcy. And PG&E has, like, for years, everybody who is a, a customer of PG&E keeps a spare pitchfork and torch in their closet anyway. <laughs> um, but for the wildfire mitigation plan, like, the, the plan was bad to begin with. The execution has been horrific. They haven't been able to do it. But no one else has a better – the governor certainly doesn't have a better plan. So but they're being asked to do a lot with – zero money. So they can't get done what they need to do to like install all these sensors and, and really good technology. So the only thing that they can do, and this is going to be the only option they're going to have because our wildfire season is going to be worse this year. Last year, there was some grace and they didn't have a bad wildfire season, but this year it's going to be worse. And they just have to prevent fires. And the only way they can do it is public safety power shutoffs. So there are going to be a lot more outages and people are going to be complaining about that and people are going to be at risk with that, but far better than being at risk for the wildfires. 
The other thing that's compounding this, which I think Catherine was referring to, is that the snowpack this year is down at like 37% of normal. And so you're talking about much drier California because uh, the drought conditions uh, from this last winter, right? And so you're compounding all this stuff with the drought, which never, by the way, ever really went away. We had like two or three good years of rain and snow and everyone said, hallelujah, we don't have to deal with drought issues anymore. And so, you know, I think part of this is just trying to figure out what the preparedness looks like in a drought, COVID, wildfire, California. Yeah, totally. So they've only gotten like 30% of the tree trimming. So there, there are a bunch of different things they have to do. They have to trim their trees, clear out the brush. They have to replace a bunch of poles and cover or bury wires in areas that are at risk. They have to have sensor technologies so they can know where the hotspots are and where the areas are that they need to, to go to. But the other thing is just having backup and microgrids. And the microgrid proceeding has, as Jigger said, been a disaster. They have, however, been a- ahead of procurement of diesel gensets. They've procured 450 megawatts. They were only uh, slated to procure 300 megawatts of these diesel gensets. And remember, with diesel, you need a supply line. And if you have a bunch of fires and a bunch of trees down, it may be impossible to even get diesel to where it needs to go, not to mention that diesel is also bad for the lungs. Yeah, so there was not much of a plan last time to keep medical equipment going. Now they've, they're developing a plan for backup generation, but it includes mostly diesel generators. The pollution from those diesel generators can make respiratory problems worse, uh, which is obviously a major problem for coronavirus patients. It feels like we are in a pretty sticky spot here, a really powerful example of just how interconnected these issues are. Let's wrap up the show and talk about our free electrons. Catherine, what do you got this week? Yeah, so I went down the cool technology rabbit hole, and I have two cool technology stories I want to share. One is that e News re- reported that Stanford has come up with a wireless charger for EVs that's more efficient than the previous versions. It doesn't yet produce the amount of electricity needed to charge vehicles, but if if it works, and they think it does, and you can scale it, then we really could have you know, roadways, just like we've talked about solar freaking roadways, but have roadways that charge cars as they drive oh my. Um, without having to stop and refuel at charging stations. So it's pretty cool to listen to that. Um, you know, they're they're already experimenting with uh, buses charging at uh, charging pads at stops in like Long Beach and Chattanooga. But um, this would this is a whole different level. So it'd be fun to watch them. And the other story I wanted to mention and Um, Full disclosure, I do have a partnership with Form Energy, but Form Energy announced last week that, and Form Energy is a long duration storage company that does super cheap, long, super long duration storage projects. And they announced their first pilot with Great River Energy in Minnesota. It's the largest uh, G&T co-op in the country. It is in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And they are closing a coal plant, a Coal Creek Station coal plant. And instead, they're going to add 1,100 megawatts of wind to their already 660 megawatts. And then they're going to add a megawatt of this form energy storage, but it goes for 150 hours continuously. It's pretty incredible. And if they can prove this out, it will then prove out the notion that renewables and long duration storage could 
basically replace any fossil fuel plant. That is such a cool project. It, you you stole my uh, free electron, Catherine, on the on the. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> no, sorry. No, I've got a, I, I can. I, I was wondering why you were looking down, Jigger, like typing furiously, <laughs> and uh, so as she's talking, he's searching for another story. All right, so now you're now you're under pressure, Jigger. Do you have any other stories, or was that it? So I'm I'm gonna go with the more whimsical. Okay. So this week there was a Twitter feed on Energy Twitter, which started from SaveOnEnergy.com in the UK, who tried to figure out which Disney princesses were the most energy efficient. And I have to say that I I thought their methodology was just terrible. It was got to be the worst (laughs) methodology I'd ever seen. And so I proposed a different one. Are you you an expert on Disney's princesses? Well, you know, I've got Disney Plus and I have a four-year-old. So, you know, and he's got the full frozen regalia. So he actually has gloves, (laughs) uh, necklaces. Oh, man, he's he's all decked out every morning. (laughs) So I have to say, check out the Twitter feed because I, you know, from my perspective, Pocahontas and Moana were more green, but they actually thought it was Aurora and Snow White, which I find offensive. What was their reasoning? You know, I think that they really just thought that, that magic didn't count as energy. And I was like, what's wrong with you? I said, like, the more magic they use, that is just energy. It just happens to be that you don't want to show Cinderella's glass slippers coming from a coal plant. And so, you know, make it magic. But I mean, you know, you can't, magic is just another form of energy. That's not energy efficiency. I, for one, can't wait to see what happens when they expand beyond the Disney universe. Imagine <laughs> about all those candles in Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's some indoor air pollution for you, Catherine. <laughs> So um, I was reading through this poll from Energist Ventures, and they worked with um, the, the, this organization called the Harris Poll, surveying a couple thousand U.S. adults. And they found that only two in five Americans believe that climate change will damage the U.S. economy if not addressed. And I've seen variations of that question. I think Americans raise alarm depending on how the question is asked. But I thought this was significant because here we are at a moment, it's sort of the flip side of the question we've been trying to answer today, which is, do we have the solutions to ramp up the economy quickly? Uh, What in clean energy can we get moving fastest? And what would be the economic impact? Of course, the economic impact of inaction is massive and widespread and over a long period of time far surpasses what we're seeing with the shutdown related to the pandemic. And so, you know, there's a failure of imagination among the public, not just Americans, in imagining disasters like a pandemic. And only when we're experiencing it do we understand the economic consequences. And I think we're seeing the same thing play out with climate change. So given the situation today, that number really jumped out at me. And I think we have a lot more to do to educate people about both the economic upside and the economic downside of not doing anything about climate change. No, it's a great piece. It's um, It actually just goes to a much longer conversation about economics and you know GDP and some of those things, right? I mean, if you bake your own bread, you're basically reducing GDP. If you take care of your own children, you're reducing GDP, right? And I think that figuring out how the economy works and what economy everybody wants is, uh, you know, the next big question, I think. 
Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. And we are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Find us all on social media and send us some links or responses. We definitely read your messages, too. So send a, a, a direct message to the Energy Gang account. We, we're not able to get back to folks, but we do read all the messages and we appreciate the input. It certainly helps us inform how we approach certain topics. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Energy.